Lord, we just uh, come before you today and humble ourselves as we come to your word. Jesus, we pray that your spirit would speak to us. We pray, God, that um, Christ would be magnified, that our hearts and minds would be turned towards you, Jesus, and all that we have in you. And so, Lord, we just uh, thank you for the opportunity to spend some time together in your word. And we pray, God, for unction, for the presence and the power of your spirit to make the word come alive to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So if you're visiting with us this morning here for the first time, we've been just making our way through this letter to the Galatian churches, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, biting off a little bit each week. And um, Paul has written this letter to this group of churches, and he's addressing a problem that's uh, surfaced in their church and that he has to address. And so he's been on this theme, and he's not strained from it. Even this morning, as we consider uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, Paul has been talking about this idea over and over and over again, and he keeps hitting it from different angles, that in the world there's really just two systems of religion. That's how I want to describe it this morning. One is false and the other is true. And there are many religions, and they fall into one category, and then Christianity falls into another category in contrast to all others. And these two systems of religion or faith, well, one is based on law, and the other is based on grace. One is based on the way of works, and the other is on the way of faith. And these two systems of belief are mutually exclusive. They don't, they don't harmonize with one another. You can't throw them into a blender, so to speak, you know, like we do in our house all the time. The blenders, the kids have always got the blender going, mixing something up, but you can't do that with faith and works or with law and grace. Get some mix because they're like oil and water. They spring forth from different sources. Like the way of law and works depends on human achievement human efforts, human striving, and in the way of grace that Paul is promoting and speaking about to the Galatian churches, in the way of faith and grace, a person casts themselves and their sin completely upon the mercy of God that's available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us. And this has been the whole discussion and the argument of this letter to the Galatian churches. Paul hasn't strayed from this theme. You cannot harmonize these two systems. They oppose one another. So check it out. In verse 1, he says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke, to a yoke of slavery. So this verse makes two really clear statements. The first is this, that for freedom, that for the purpose of freedom, Christ has set us free. That is what the message of the gospel is about, about us discovering freedom and true liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the state of our existence, the Bible says, outside of the person of Jesus is actually one of slavery. It's a life of slavery. Now, often in the church, we speak about being slaves to sin, which, is, which we are by, by the result and by result are slaves to death. But the heart 
And the thrust of what Paul says here this morning in this text that we're looking at is interesting because it's not about slavery to sin. He's talking about slavery to the law, that Christ has set us free from slavery to the law. I came across this quote by John Stott. I want to read it for you. It'll be on the screen. John Stott said this, What Christ has done in liberating us, according to Paul's emphasis here, is not so much to set our will free from the bondage of sin as to set our conscience free from the guilt of sin. And so as we talk about law, the law depends on human achievements, on works, on human striving to garner and and arm twist God into a position of owing us to garner favor with Him. And it's a desperate struggle. We've all been there when you're like just striving in yourself and it leaves you insecure, unsure about, you know, your standing before God and your relationship with Him. And so Paul says it's for this reason that Christ has set us free, for freedom, so that we would know freedom, the acceptance of God, access to God, the forgiveness of God. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, and that's actually a freedom for us, for our conscience on the inside, that inner voice. You know that one we all have that says, you failed, you've fallen, you fall short, that that inner voice that condemns us of not meeting God's standard, that inner voice that condemns us with regards to God's law. In Christ, there is freedom for the conscience. We say this in our discipleship, there's assurance for your soul. You can be assured of your salvation. You can be assured of your forgiveness. You can be assured of God's strength and temptation. You can be assured of answered prayer. You can be assured of His guidance. There is freedom from the struggle to dot all the I's and cross all the T's so as to win favor with God And the freedom is found in the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God accepts you when you come to Him in faith. That's freedom. That's what Paul says. And so he says this, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The action of living in freedom that Christ brings is twofold. Firstly, he says this. It'll be on your screen. Stand firm. This is an action that Paul says you have to, the the verbiage of the original language says, you have to actively participate in this, standing firm. And then secondly, do not submit to a yoke of slavery or be entangled in the yoke of slavery. In the Greek, the verb here is in the passive, meaning that this is something that gets done to you. And so we're called to an active stance of standing in the Lord and guarding against passively letting someone else put a yoke on us. Stand firm and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. See, God wants you to enjoy the freedom that is yours in Christ Jesus, the freedom of conscience that is yours through the forgiveness that Jesus makes available. And we slip from standing standing firm, we slip from that and we allow a yoke of slavery to be put on us, a yoke that says, you have to win the favor of God. You have to win His acceptance by your obedience. 
The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, prophesied this. Jeremiah said this. I will make an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This everlasting covenant that Jeremiah speaks of, this is ours in Christ. And the promise of this covenant is this, is that God will not turn away from doing good to you. When you trust Jesus, you don't have to win God's acceptance. You just trust Christ and His promises. He'll be good to you. And so Paul says this this turning from trusting in Christ and going to human achievements and works is like submitting to a yoke of slavery, and you can't do that. A yoke, I I mean, we, we know what that is, but in case... Uh, you, you don't, or it's interesting just to consider it was a wooden instrument, kind of a, like a cross piece that would be set across uh, two animals fastened over the neck of an animal like an ox. And then it would be uh, attached to some farming implement or to haul something, pull something, uh, maybe a farming implement like a, a plow. And the idea is the picture of struggle and weight and burden and pulling the implement being dragged behind, being resisted by the earth. And the yoke is a weight hanging around the neck. And the implement being dragged behind causes forward motion to be slow and hard and difficult. It's amazing. Jesus said, as you know, if you're weary and you're burdened, yoke yourself to me for my burden is easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And one time we were under the yoke of the law. We were burdened by demands we could not meet, fearful of the condemnation that would be ours due to our disobedience. And Jesus met the demands of the law. That's the gospel. He died for our disobedience. He died in our place for our sin. And he takes the yoke off our neck when we trust in him. And so Paul says this, why would you get yourself entangled in the yoke once more? You know, when I think about that, I think, man, you know, there's such a deep misunderstanding about Christianity out in the world, isn't there? There, There's such a deep misunderstanding about what Christian faith is about. So many people think Christians are like, they're under rules. You know, they live by a bunch of rules, and it's such a burden to be a Christian. I was like, and you don't know what you're talking about. Isn't that true? Christianity is about freedom. It's about a yoke being lifted off you, and what happens is this. is you just Your life has changed. You just don't want to live for the things that you used to live for. You just have a desire to live for Jesus because Jesus is freedom, not rules. Jesus is liberty, not slavery. If Christ has set you free, Paul says, stand firm in that. Stand firm in Valor Boys Club. I'm looking around to see if any of our Valor Boys are here. They're all downstairs. Yeah, Phil knows. We say this, hold fast. And that's our little motto. And one of us leaders will say, hold fast. And the boys will all go, whatever they're doing, hold fast. That's right. Stand firm. Hold fast. Now in the Galatian churches, False teachers had crept into their midst and they were trying to lay that yoke of slavery on the people, trying to entangle the church once again. 
They said this, that if you're a Gentile, not Jewish, if you're a Gentile and you want to follow Christ, they said you have to be circumcised because in Judaism, circumcision was the sign that you're part of God's people, his covenant people. So they said you have to do this. So let's see what Paul says here, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So Paul says, here's the reality. If you submit to this demand of these false teachers to circumcision, I don't want to make the men squirm here for a little bit, but this is the topic, okay? Circumcision, the truth is, it, I mean, that's a minor surgical procedure that's, you know, a few days and if, takes a few minutes to happen, takes a few days to heal, and the guys are squirming, but, you know, it's relatively minor. But Paul says this, you may think it's minor, but if you submit to it, here's the key, you will lose your freedom. It is submitting and being entangled to a yoke of slavery, he says. It will put you under the law and you will have fallen from grace. Obviously, you know, 20 centuries have passed since this letter was written to the church. Circumcision's a non-issue in the modern church, thankfully. But the principle remains. The principle is this. If anybody is going around the church and saying, to be a Christian, you must do this. To be a follower of Jesus, you must do that. You must add in addition to trusting Jesus. Well, Paul is saying this. They are doing the same things the false teachers were doing in Galatia. And to be under the law is slavery. To think about keeping the commandments all the time is slavery. To think about keeping the commandments all the time is bondage. And the result is this. You're going to live in fear rather than freedom. You're going to be under constant guilt. If Christ has set you free, and then you come back under the bondage of the law because you let someone lay rules on you or you lay rules on yourself, then you're no longer as free as you used to be. I mean, it's just that simple. And Paul says, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what it was like to seek God on the basis of your own effort? And if you seek to please God by your own effort, even if it's in one single area of your life, you are liable to the entire law of Moses, to its entirety. You're under law, he says. It's not a game of pick and choose. If you want to get to heaven by keeping the commandments, then you have to keep them all. It's not like high school. 50% was a pass in high school. You know, it's not 86% is an A. It's 100%. That's the only grade that counts. If you put yourselves under one law, the principle is this, you put yourself under them all. And Paul says, the result, which is terrifying, is that you're severed from Christ. You are beyond grace. 
Grace cannot reach the person who is trying to make themselves acceptable to God by works, by human achievement. Remember, grace and law, oil and water. They're incompatible. You don't get partway uh, to Jesus by grace and then put the icing on the cake through your works. Grace and law or oil and water. I, I read a story several times over the years of a watchman Nee, who was an influential character in the Chinese church um, in the last century. And one day he was on the beach in China, standing there with a friend, and they were looking out over the ocean, and they saw a man who was struggling in the water, and he started to go down because he was drowning. And he'd go down, he'd pop back up, give some cries for help, and he was in real trouble. And the problem was that Watchman Nee couldn't swim. So he said to his friend who could swim, you're going to have to go in and help that guy. You're going to have to go in and save him because I can't swim, I can't save him, you have to help him. But his friend didn't move. He stood there as that man was drowning. And finally, as the man went down one more time, Watchman Nee's friend jumped in, swam out to him, got a hold of the man, dragged him back to shore, and saved him. And when they got back to the shore, Watchman said to him, that was wonderful, but why didn't you go in sooner to help that drowning man? And the friend said to him, if I would have gone in earlier, then he would have drowned us both. He was still struggling, and he was a strong man, and I couldn't have saved him. And the illustration is this. God can't do much with a man or woman in their struggles. And so he waits. He waits till we get to the end of ourselves. He waits till we get to the end of ourselves. And his word tells us that he acts for those who wait for him. He acts for those who say to him, God, I surrender. I surrender, Jesus, I surrender to you. What Paul says is this, when we go about it ourselves, we put ourselves beyond the reach of God's grace. Paul doesn't say this. He doesn't say that you lose your faith. He doesn't say that you lose your salvation. He says this, you fall from grace. He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about life here and now. He's talking about the present. He's talking about today. In the present, you sever yourself from Christ and are cut off from grace when you try on your own. I do this every day. Don't you? I do this every day. Can you relate to that? I do this every day, and then the Holy Spirit pricks my heart and says, remember, remember Christ. Remember the grace of God. Remember Cast yourself on Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit brings me back to Christ. The Holy Spirit brings you back to Christ. And Jesus says this to us. My grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. And then I say, oh Lord, help me to rely on your grace more and more. Help me, Lord, to stand firm. Help me, Lord, not to be entangled in a yoke of slavery which is striving by human efforts. A relationship with Jesus depends upon the grace of God 
And it begins with the grace of God and it ends with the grace of God. And it's impossible to receive Christ. It's impossible to receive Christ when you're acknowledging, not acknowledging that uh, you can't save yourself. It's impossible to receive Christ when you claim by your efforts, you can do it. You have to choose all the time as a follower of Jesus. You choose between grace and law. You choose between faith and works. And if you choose grace, Paul's instruction is this. You cannot add the necessity of the law to your salvation. Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. And this is where the Christian life gets really exciting. Because Paul's about to get into a discussion on leaning on the Spirit, depending on the Holy Spirit, learning to walk with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul's going to dive deep into this relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. We'll see that in the weeks to come. This morning, we just get a primer on that. But look at verse 5. He says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The Christian life and living it victoriously is dependent upon the Spirit's work in our life. It is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And what we read here is the Holy Spirit produces fruit. The Holy Spirit brings forth faith. The Holy Spirit brings forth the hope of righteousness. The Holy Spirit brings forth works of love by faith. The Holy Spirit does not bring forth works of the law. The Holy Spirit brings forth the hope of righteousness, works of love, and faith. In fact, in verse 5 and 6, Paul speaks of these three great virtues, faith, hope, and love. And these virtues are seen as a work of the Spirit in us. Look again at verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So through the Spirit, by faith, we wait, Paul says. Which is interesting. I want you to catch that word. If you're you're someone who likes to mark up your Bible, which you all should be, circle that word, wait. Wait. By faith, we wait. You know what he doesn't say? Faith works. He says this, faith waits. Faith waits. Faith produces eager waiting. The Spirit produces a faith that waits, not works. A faith that waits, not works. I was looking up that word wait in the original language and in the Bible dictionary, and it defines this waiting as assiduously and patiently waiting. I thought, I don't know what assiduously means. So I looked it up. It means to wait with great care. To wait with great care and perseverance. Patient waiting. We wait patiently and the Spirit produces this. By faith we wait and you say, well, what are we waiting for? Paul says we're waiting for the hope of righteousness. We're waiting for the hope of righteousness. We're waiting for the future when faith 
And justification brings us into the full reality of Christ and we are together with Him face to face. We don't work for the day when we wait to meet Jesus. That's not what he says. We don't work. We wait for the day when we get to meet Jesus. It's called the hope of righteousness. That's our hope. That's our hope. You know, in our day, we have a very weak understanding in the English language of what hope is. We think of hope more as something like wishful thinking, you know. It's like, I I hope things will work out. I don't really know, but I hope so. That's not biblical hope. In biblical hope, there's nothing wishful about it whatsoever. It is a hope that is absolutely certain. The hope that the Holy Spirit produces is a hope that is absolutely sure. Biblical hope is not an adjective. Hope is a noun here. And we are striving... We are not striving anxiously in hope that we might secure some righteousness, some sort of wishful thinking by our own effort. No, the Spirit, Paul says, produces the hope of righteousness, and for this we wait. And this righteousness infers to two things. It'll be on your screen for you. This righteousness infers that God will treat you as a good person because You are in Christ. This is grace. This is what grace is. God treats me better than I deserve. God's riches at Christ's expense, that old acronym. And secondly, this righteousness infers that God will transform you into a good person because you are in Christ. Again, this is an act of grace. This is the work of God's grace. And and I would say this, I I want to partner with God in doing this, but it doesn't happen by me adding laws to my life. It happens by depending on the leading of the Holy Spirit. The best thing I can do to be transformed is to put myself in a position where I stand firm in the freedom that is in Christ, and I don't allow myself to be entangled. I don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Look again at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. In Christ, what matters is faith. When you're in Christ, that's all that matters. Trust. True faith, uh, Paul says, produces hope and it produces love. And so circumcision or uncircumcision can't prove anything with regards to your standing with God. Just be in Christ. Just trust Christ in faith. And while we wait, what we find out is this, the Holy Spirit's at work. While we wait, the Holy Spirit will work and He will produce faith. He will conform us to the image of Christ. He will produce the hope of righteousness. He will produce Love, and He will produce works through love. Now look what He says in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So Paul here uses two, two illustrations, uh, one from sports, 
always like the sports illustrations, athletics, and the other from the kitchen, from cooking. And firstly, he says this, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Which is a great picture because, you know, the Bible presents the Christian life as one of running a race. You're running a race. When you're born again and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you repent of sin and you trust in Christ, and you're born of the Spirit, you come into the kingdom. And what the Bible teaches us is that that is not the finish line. That's just the starting line. That's the gun going off for the starting line. That's the beginning of our life with Christ. And then our life is pictured as running a race, and we're aiming to finish, and to finish well, to cross that finish line. And on the track, when you run on a track, you've got to stay in your lane. Step out of the lane, and you might be disqualified. But to stay in your lane when you're running in a, in a track meet, what you don't do is look down to look at where the lines are. What do you do? It's like driving a car. You look out front of you. You look out in front. You look towards the finish line. And as you focus on the finish line and you're looking ahead, your peripheral vision will catch where the lanes are, where the lines are, and you'll run within your lane. And the illustration is this, you were running in your lane and you were running really, really well. Like it was impressive. And then you got cut off. <laughs> Paul says, who cut you off? In other words, another runner stepped into your lane and you had to adjust. You had to stutter step. You, you took a misstep. You changed your pace. You stopped looking forward at the finish line, and now all of a sudden, because someone stepped into your lane, you're really paying attention to where the lines are, and you're looking down rather than looking forward. And because your focus is there, you're insecure. You're worried about misstepping. And you've got to get your focus back on the finish line. For the Galatians, this was happening, Paul says, because false teachers had cut them off. They'd come in to the church. And Paul says, you were obeying the truth. You were looking forward. You were obeying the truth who cut you off. And he says this persuasion, the focus on the law, to focus on the lines in the race, that doesn't come from the one who called you. That doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. He uses another illustration from the kitchen. He says a little leaven Leavens the whole lump. I think I made bread one time when we were married early, you know. <laughs> Maybe twice. I like to eat it all the time, though. In fact, too often, I might say, eating bread. But uh, the Bible often uses this picture of leaven as a picture of sin, an illustration of sin. Leaven is an agent that is put into bread that causes the dough to rise. Remember in the book of Exodus, the first Passover... The people were eating, and while they were eating, they were to be dressed and ready to depart from Egypt because the call was going to come at any moment. There wasn't time to put leaven in the bread mixture. They couldn't wait for the dough to rise because there was an urgency and there was an expectation about the departure. So the bread was cooked without leaven. And in their practice every year at Passover, this is reenacted. During the time leading up to Passover in a Jewish household, 
They'll go through the house and they'll ensure that there is no leaven in the house just in case, you know, just in case they go through every corner of the house in case somehow leaven, some way leaven happened to be in the house because this, it only takes a little leaven and the whole lump, it'll work through the whole lump. A little leaven in the bread and the process begins and it's pervasive and it works unseen. But the bread will start to rise and the leaven will work its way through the whole lump. And so Paul says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. What's the view? He says, I, I, I trust that you will take this view. Leaven is pervasive. And those who try to blend law and works with faith and grace are like that person who cuts you off when they're running the race. The one who is troubling you, Paul says, will be penalized, whoever it is. Then in verse 11, he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, Paul here uh, says this, he calls the Galatians brothers, brothers and sisters. They're family members. They're part of the household of God. They're part of the kingdom. They're part of the church because they trusted in Christ. And it seems that false teachers were deceptively saying that Paul preaches the need for circumcision. It was a rumor floating around through the Galatian churches. Paul preaches Jesus, but he preaches that you need to add the law of Moses to your faith teaches Christ and teaches circumcision. And, Christ, and Paul says this, if that's the case, why are these people causing me so much trouble, persecuting me? It can't be both ways. You can't say, I teach the same thing as you, I land in the same camp as you, and then persecute me. That doesn't make sense. You can't have it both ways, because if I teach both law and works, and at the same time, grace and faith, he says, I have actually removed the offense of the cross. I like this. <laughs> the cross is offensive. The cro we put that new sign up there. I said, I want a cross on it because <laughs> it's offensive. The cross is offensive. It is, the Bible says, a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But let me tell you this. For the drowning person, the cross is salvation. The cross is salvation. For the person suffocated by life, Christ crucified is the rescue. For the person submerged in the grasp of sin, Christ crucified is the power of God to save. For the person clutched by fear of death, Christ crucified is the promise of life. For the person broken by their own weakness, Christ crucified is the power of God. For the person weary of the foolishness of man, Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. No human being can boast in his presence. So the word says this, Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in 
the Lord. Christ crucified. That is our message. And what Paul says is this, is that you can empty the power of the cross. You are, sorry, you can empty the cross of its power in your own life. This can happen in your own life. What happened on the cross? On the cross where Jesus was nailed, he bore our sins in his body on that tree. And Paul says this, you can actually, in this sense, unload your sins off of Christ. Would you dare empty the cross of its power? Who cut in on you? A little leaven, you foolish Galatians. The cross is the power of God. It reminds me of last week when we talked about this, that Ishmael mocks Isaac from that old Bible story. But Isaac knows this. Isaac knows that he is a child of promise and he's born of the Spirit. Don't empty the cross of its power. Let others mock. Don't empty the cross of its power. And the Apostle Paul gets crude here. He's so upset about this. He says, if that's what you want to do, then go the whole way. <laughs> Not just circumcision. Emasculate yourselves. Not just circumcision. Emasculation. He's saying this. Don't play games. Uh, preaching human merit and the sufficiency of man, you may as well go the whole way because your life will be fruitless like an emasculated man. You will produce nothing. You will prevent yourself from having children. The cross, church, the cross forces you to choose between Christ and the law or Christ and circumcision in this case. One or the other, oil and water, and there is zero harmony. And the cross is about what God has done. The cross is about the achievement of Jesus. Circumcision is about bondage. Christ is freedom, and you can't have both. They're mutually exclusive. Cross is not about what I do. It's about what Christ has done. And you have to choose. It's this constant thing. Whether you're outside the kingdom of God or those that are inside, you have to choose. Every day you have to choose. And your choice reveals your motive. And if you want to flatter yourself, you'll choose human achievement. You'll choose your own efforts. You'll choose your own striving. You know, one of the signs of a person that does that is this. They never talk about Jesus. They never talk about the cross. They never talk about the blood of Jesus. They talk about works. Works, works, works. Did we do this? Did you do that? Did you do this? And in our lives, that's a good litmus test. It's a good self-test. How much am I talking about Jesus? How much am I talking about the cross? And how much am I talking about my own works? You have to choose. Before the cross, before Jesus, you have to humble yourself. And the warning of this text to us this morning is this. Don't go back to slavery. Stand firm. Don't get entangled. Be on your guard all the time and choose Christ. Choose dependency upon Christ. Choose to depend on the Spirit. Choose not to rely on your human works. Choose the grace of God. 
And the Spirit of God will produce hope, faith, and love. And God will count you as good, and God will transform you into good. It's God's work. It's His work. Let's cast ourselves upon Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Would you stand with me this morning? Lord, as we consider your word, Jesus, we need you. Every day, Father, we need your son. Father, every day we're dependent upon the work of the cross. Jesus, every day we depend upon you by your power, transforming us and changing us. Lord, this morning, we thank you for your grace. We pray, God, that our church, that we as men and women, would be a people of grace. Lord, would you just strip the efforts to achieve in our own strength off of us? Lord, we pray that we would grow in dependency upon the Spirit. We pray, God, that we would grow in dependency upon your grace. We thank you, Jesus, that our salvation, our relationship with you is grace from first to last. And so, Jesus, this morning we fix our eyes on the finish line, looking ahead. Lord, help us to run hard and to run fast and to run for your glory. Jesus, be glorified in us and in your church, we pray. In your name, amen.